Thanks for being with us on this Saturday morning. Last weekend on the program, we talked about a case involving an incident that was dooring, and that is when a door is opened on a vehicle and a cyclist crashes into it. And this was a very sad case in which the cyclist was killed after crashing into the door. And we talked about it last weekend because there was an opinion piece written from a legal point of view. Lawyer Kyla Lee said that she felt the $81 ticket that was given to the driver was the appropriate uh, punishment in this case, was the appropriate thing to do uh, because of how things unfolded and because that's what uh, the available punishment was. Well, the cycling group hub is calling for changes to the Motor Vehicle Act, saying that that was not the appropriate punishment in this case. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Jeff Lee, a hub cycling board member, also chair of the uh, Vancouver Local Committee with Hub. Jeff, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, what is your response when, when following this case, and unfortunately there have been other cases similar to this as well, uh, what is your response to uh, how this unfolded and the ticket that was given in this case? Well, it was a very sad, tragic case, as, as you say. Um, there have been many more than this one. And so we have had a campaign at Hub Cycling for some time now to call for changes and updates to what is currently called the Motor Vehicle Act which we would like to see as the Road Safety Act. And dooring is simply one element of, uh, of risky behavior that uh, causes harm to vulnerable road users. And so it's one of the changes we'd like to see. And in this case, I think the, the, the reason that the fine was appropriate is that's what the current Motor Vehicle Act calls for. And the problem isn't that they didn't give out a higher fine. The problem is that the Motor Vehicle Act does not recognize the issues with things like dooring, and that's where we're calling for changes. And so what would you like to see changed when it comes to dooring? We'd like to see the Motor Vehicle Act acknowledge vulnerable road users, and there's, there's various uh, aspects of the Motor Vehicle Act that, would, um, that have been used in other jurisdictions to uh, highlight the risks to, to vulnerable road users, whether there are people on bikes or whether there are people walking. That can be opening doors, that can be harassment of people on foot and on bike, it can be aggressive driving or negligence leading to injury or death of, of people walking or cycling. Um, Ontario t- updated their uh, Motor Vehicle Act and turned it into a, a road safety act uh, several years back. And they went from a $60 fine for dooring and no demerit points to a $365 mandatory fine and three demerit points. And that's typical of other jurisdictions. It, it's BC that has not kept pace with um, the changing mix of users on our roads. And is it too soon or are we able to see if a change like that in Ontario made a positive impact? Because I would imagine the the outcome that we're hoping for here is that nobody gets doored, that, that this stops happening. It, it, it does increasing the fine and adding points to it act as a deterrent? I, I don't have a report that says in, in, from Ontario what the difference has been, but the issue is that it isn't just one element of, of uh, the merit points. There's three things that are required to make it safer here. There's education awareness for people in vehicles about opening doors, and, and a common response to that is what is uh, known as the Dutch Reach campaign, a safer way of opening a door that causes the person opening the door to look over their shoulder, do a shoulder check and make sure it's clear. So there's education and there's awareness, including on, on driver's tests and so on. Then there's the enforcement aspect and, and, uh, and uh, things like the, the fines and the demerit points and, uh, and, and if, if, if there is a tragedy like this. And then there is the case of the infrastructure. And, and infrastructure, cycling lanes that are positioned immediately next to vehicle doors 
without any buffer zone contribute to this issue. So I think we have to look at all three of those, not simply at the, at the penalty. Uh, and you mentioned the, the Dutch reach campaign, and, and we talked about that actually last weekend as well, because that seems to me the one that was probably would be the easiest to get that education, to get people doing that. And if more drivers did that, I would imagine that would cut down on this issue drastically. I think it would. Um, we have seen uh, good results from that campaign elsewhere, and uh, it, it came from Europe. It's, uh, there's, a, there's an active Dutch Reach campaign in Canada, and for those, you know, just as a reminder for those uh, your listeners who aren't aware of it, if you're sitting in the driver's seat and you go to open your door, uh, instead of using your left hand and basically pushing the door open with your shoulder, it involves reaching across with your right hand, opening the door, and that positions your body to do a shoulder check. And it just leads to naturally looking back over your shoulder as you open the door and, and, and increases the, uh, the safety. It doesn't just apply to drivers. It applies to passengers as well, um, where there are bikes traveling immediately next to a vehicle. Uh, you mentioned the infrastructure as well, and there certainly have been calls for certain bike lanes uh, saying that certain ones are more dangerous than others. Uh, the one in North Vancouver, uh, Esplanade, I think, has been in the news uh, quite a bit in that. Uh, are there ones, is that an example, or are there other examples, you think, of, of ones where the design simply isn't a good design? The, there are. The, the, the painted bike lanes as opposed to the protected bike lanes or the physically protected bike lanes are more dangerous. And that's simply because vehicles can enter them, doors can enter them, there's, there's a, this competition for that space. Um, when you have a protected lane, you don't have the risk of this happening. When you have a painted lane that is positioned immediately next to the vehicle, there's the risk of this happening. And there are lanes like that in Vancouver, and there's also um, places where cyclists are instructed to ride as far to the right as possible and there isn't a painted lane but they're by by circumstance they're positioned close to the vehicle doors the city of vancouver is currently building a new painted lane still and one example would be on nanaimo street and while there is a painted bike lane next to the parked cars it is not immediately next to the parked cars there's actually there are three lines and there's a crosshatch area so there's a space that in between the bike lane and the vehicle doors to provide that space that's a much better approach even better if we can find ways of providing physical separation but even the crosshatch and the offset distance makes it safer and that would be similar to uh, the one that comes to mind would be hornby where there's planters isn't there between the parking spots and the bike lane Exactly. That's a protected lane where we don't have this issue simply because there's a physical barrier and there's an offset in between the parked cars. So on Longhornby, where there are parked cars next to the protected bike lane, there is a curb or a landing area where people can get out of the car and stand on the curb and then look and cross the bike lane when it's safe to do so. That's the, that, that's the, the, the best we can do in terms of uh, avoiding this, uh, the risk of this uh, type of tragedy. And, and how much do you think as well? I mean, obviously, there are, there are bad drivers, there are bad pedestrians, there are bad cyclists, there are always people that are going to be uh, have with behavior that is dangerous to others. Uh, but how much of this also is cyclists uh, or, or rests with cyclists being safe cyclists as well in that I see cyclists blast through stop signs every single day, and they're supposed to stop at least slow down to see if there are pedestrians or cars coming. How much of this, you know, is, is the cyclists that also have to play a role in safety? The cyclist's role in this is to not ride next to the vehicle where there's this risk. And the recommendation that we have is for cyclists to remain one to one and a half meters out from parked cars to avoid this risk. 
What the problem that you have is you'll often have a, uh, a vehicle operator who is annoyed that the, the, the bike is not right over to the edge up against the parked cars and may pass too close, may threaten the person on the bike because they're not providing sufficient space. If the person on the bike stays out the meter that we call for, and if we had a safe passing law, as another of the changes we're calling for in the Motor Vehicle Act, um, we're asking for the vehicle operator to leave a minimum of 1.5 meters when passing a bike. And that provides the space to stay out of that door zone. When the vehicle stays exactly in the painted lane or perhaps edges towards the bike lane and the, the person on the bike is trapped in between the vehicle and the parked cars, that's when we get tragedies like in, we just had in North Van. What we would like to see is driver, bike riders stay out a little further from the parked cars where they need to ride next to parked cars, and we'd like to see drivers give them sufficient space to allow them to do that. So even those drivers who are very good at opening the doors and check back can help in this situation by not crowding persons on bikes who are, are riding, give them sufficient space, and let's make room for all of us. Although there physically isn't that much room, if we're talking about the lanes, say on 10th Avenue or 7th Avenue, which aren't even painted lanes, they're, they're, they're lanes that every so often there's a bike painted on the, the, the pavement. Uh, but in a space like that, yeah. if the cyclist is a meter away from the car, there's not enough space then for another car to pass them and give them that much space. We have to find room for everybody on the road. And what those are, are those are local shared bike lanes and those are, are lanes where each vehicle or, or bike on the road have to negotiate the space to pass each other. There isn't space for a car to pass another car along there either. They have to wait until it's safe to do so. It's exactly the same passing a bike. You wait until it's safe to pass. You don't just assume that the, the vehicle has the right to the road and it's the, the person on the bike should be squeezed into the parked cars. We have to find room for all on the road. Those sharrows, those we call them, the share arrows, are saying position your bike here this is where you should be riding and when the sharrows are painted out in the middle of the lane that's an instruction to the person on the bike to ride and take the lane and not be at risk of of, of dooring by riding along the side but vehicle operators need to be aware of that that person on the bike is not trying to stop you they're just trying to stay safe have you had any response to uh, calls to change the motor vehicle act We've actually had a response from the uh, minister who says they're now looking at the act, and, and we welcome that. We think it's a, a terrific time to take advantage of uh, all the things we could update in the, in the uh, current Motor Vehicle Act. And uh, BC has recently introduced the active transportation strategy and has introduced design guidelines for, for infrastructure, and that's been a push over the last few months. And uh, it was at that conference where, the, where Mr. Trevina announced that uh, they are now looking at the Motor Vehicle Act, and we think that's terrific. All right. We will leave it there. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. Well, there has been a lot of attention paid to the southern resident killer whales, and for good reason. The number sitting at 76, and very a lot of concern out there that people have about the future of these whales. Well, some new research being done at SFU uh, takes a look at warning systems to protect the whales from marine traffic. And joining me to talk a bit more about this is Ruth Joy, an SFU statistician who specializes in quantitative marine mammal science. Ruth, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, one of the uh, issues and one of the uh, dangers, I suppose, uh, is marine traffic and the increase in marine traffic to the whales. So what does this research look at or do to uh, kind of protect the whales? So it's about monitoring where the whales are as they come into the Salish Sea and then uh, uh, creating an alert system so that mariners can uh, avoid them or slow down, uh, change their path, do... Um, 
you know, change the way that the chips move through habitat that the killer whales are occupying. I mean, the whales are pretty smart. Do they not pick up on when ships are in the area and know how to stay away from them? Yeah, they are smart. And yeah, most of the time they they do. Um, There's just recently been a report released from Department of Fisheries and Oceans where they determined the death of J-34, which is a member of the J-POD, died from ship collision. And then it's the first record we have of one uh, dying from from impact or from what they call blunt force trauma. And uh, people are just concerned because there's so few of them that, that, uh, that this not happen again. So this is part of uh, a big release of funding that's to try to um, get at why that happened and, and to avoid it happening in the future. And do we know then what what might be the best course of action to take as far as it is it simply uh, marine traffic taking a different route or or such when when the whales are, are right there or are there other things that can be done? Uh, well, there's there's been a, a whole bunch of mitigations that have been implemented this year through the Oceans Protection Plan, but um, I won't speak to those. I'll just speak to things that I I know a bit about, which is the shipping and. Um, what we've done through uh, collaborating with the port and with the the uh, pilots association is is come up with a plan to slow the vessels down for um, a period of time to, in order to monitor the underwater noise that's that's uh, the ships are creating, and then uh, move certain parts of the the shipping lanes have been moved as well offshore to try to overlap less with the the foraging habitat of or the preferred foraging habitat of the southern residents. Um, and some of the tug and tow, which is where they bring the those big barges and various things that are being towed by tugs have been moved as well. So there's a whole bunch of things that that we're trying to do to try to decrease the amount of noise. And then this this tool that we're developing at SFU is is another component of that, which is to try and monitor where they are in real time so that we can more or less do everything we can to avoid when the the killer whales are there foraging. And I know the research has taken a look as well as the stress that is caused to the whales. So how do we know the level of stress or the level of stress that's caused by the noise? Uh, well, that, that's kind of an interesting question, and I don't know a lot about it, but the the piece of research that sort of sparked the interest in, in, in stress was with uh, North Atlantic right whales, and in that work, they, they took the day where all the airplanes were grounded um, from 9-11, and they looked at the, the stress levels through fecal hormone analysis, I think it was, uh, uh, relative to when all the shipping and other airplanes and all the anthropogenic sources of noises were back at their normal level. And they were able to show that the stress levels were decreased in the in the North Atlantic right whales. Um, and we can see from fecal hormone analysis here on the West Coast as well that there's indicators of stress from from noise and from other well, we're not really sure exactly. It's hard to find the smoking gun, but there's certainly stress levels in the cortisone levels in the fecal analysis that we're doing on our whales as well. All right. And you're using hydrophones, uh, the underwater nodes and such. It sounds uh, very interesting as far as the equipment and that that's used yeah. in, in getting this information. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so it's a it's a big engineering project, and and I'm not an engineer, but uh, there there's about 20 underwater listening nodes that are in the Salish Sea. Some of them are transmitting in real time, so we can, if a whale is is detected by an underwater listening node, we can tell right away, and um, and then we have to build these machine machine learning algorithms to be able to tell a southern resident from a transient from a northern resident from you know any other marine uh, or uh, animal sound because lots of non-shipping sounds that come in under on these hydrophones as well so um, telling a southern resident which is what we're trying to trying to protect from all the other underwater noises is a bit tricky but that's um, that's part of the project of what we'll be doing. All right. And you mentioned the funding and you've received additional funding from the government of Canada from the Ocean Protection Plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what do you do now uh, moving forward as far as your research? So we're, we just received the funding this month. And so we're just right at the start of it all. But um, what we're going to do right now is try to build these relationships with um, with with the various uh, maintainers of these hydrophones. So we've already been working with the Port of Vancouver, the ECHO program, and with SMRE Consulting and have some graduate students coming on in the fall here. And um, we've got already uh, terabytes of data that we need to start processing. So that's that's where we're going to be go- going to begin with is to try to figure out what is the archived information that we have on the whales and then moving forward we'll get to what processing of the real-time data. All right so I look forward to hearing more about this and seeing what comes of the research. Yeah. Ruth thank you so much for joining us to talk a bit more about it this morning. Okay thank you very much.